0: Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 337th episode, we have a bunch of news, including how Tyrannosaurus Rex walked. And even though I don't have a sauropod, it looks like Sabrina found a sauropod news item to sneak in.
1: Yeah, there's always sauropod news. (laughs) We have other news too.
0: And we also have dinosaur of the day Eotriceratops, as well as a Fun fact, which is more of a more so than just a rabbit hole. It's like a full on prairie dog underground town of interconnecting rabbit holes.
1: I wonder if dinosaurs had anything like that.
0: It would be really cool. It would be. Maybe a Rictodromius.
1: That is the main burrowing dinosaur we know.
0: Yeah. Probably not anything big or something like T Rex with tiny arms. That's not so good for burrowing. But before we get into all of that we want to thank some of our patrons and this week we have a new patron to thank and that's achilosaurus so thank you very much for joining i also like that dinosaurified name and rounding out our 10 shout outs for the week we've got sophie bradley trx dinosaurs ranger chris from dino for hire paul acanthus blue golimer mayu james Pasco, and richard
1: yeah, thank you, everybody. Thanks for being a part of our community and helping us to keep this podcast going. And if you want to join and get some of the perks that go along with it, like talking to people in our community online or taking part in watch parties or all kinds of other stuff, then go to our page at patreon.com slash And
0: before we get into our news, I have a quick follow up from last week when we were talking about how we have dinosaurs on our dinosaur museum map from six continents or seven, if you include Zealandia, and the only one that we're missing is Antarctica. And Sabrina was saying like, well, what if there was a little display in one of the research stations there?
1: It turns out there
0: is. Yeah, there is. It's super cool. So thanks to one of our patrons on Discord for sharing with us that the Crary Science Building at McMurdo Station has some like sort of tiny exhibits like of work that's ongoing basically in Antarctica. Unfortunately there aren't any dinosaurs which was a bummer to me because I really wanted to add Antarctica to our dinosaur museum map but they do have a Permian fossil there so it's like almost Dinosaur. I mean, it's fossils, so if it was like a fossil museum map, I could add it, but (laughs) I got to wait until there's like a cryolophosaurus bone there or something, antarctopelta.
1: Yeah, dinosaurs might get added.
0: I think, I hope so. That would be really cool. So, yeah, it's not far off from there being a dinosaur museum in Antarctica. It could happen, (laughs) (laughs) since we don't require it to be like a full museum building. It can just be like a display of dinosaurs in another building. It's totally fine. So thanks for sharing that. I found that really fascinating. And I'm jealous that you've been to Antarctica because I want to go. Although we have only been to two or one and a half continents in the Southern Hemisphere so far because we've only been to Australia and New Zealand. We haven't been to South America or Africa yet.
1: We have a long list of places we want to go.
0: We do, yeah. But now jumping into the news, starting with the T-Rex locomotion paper, which made its rounds, it has a really nice animation of T-Rex walking, which obviously makes it more internet viral for sure.
1: (laughs) Internet viral?
0: (laughs) Is that that what the kids are saying?
1: (laughs) Okay, old man.
0: (laughs) Did you see the video of this T-Rex walking?
1: No, I missed it somehow.
0: It's sort of like it starts on A face first view of T Rex walking, and then it pans over to the side and then it zooms into the tail because that's sort of the focus of the paper. Mm -hmm. But if you didn't read the paper, you'd be like, why are they zooming in on the tail? That's weird. (laughs) So before I get into this paper, I want to do a quick recap of some of the recent papers we've covered. Recent is sort of a vague term, basically, since we started the podcast. So the first paper, we talked about was Persons and Curry 2016. And they were scoring theropods based on their limb proportions. And the goal was basically to see a cursorial index and basically which theropods would have been the quickest, which ones have the most adaptations for moving quickly or running or walking fast, as it may be. And what they found was that juvenile T. rex or nanotyrannus, if you're into that, was more cursorial.
1: That's why they probably filled a different ecological niche.
0: Yes, and actually in that paper, they talk about this supports Nanotyrannus being its own genus, which I'm guessing Persons and Curry might not support anymore now that we've gotten more evidence to the contrary. But in any event, it shows like you were saying, even if they're the same species and genus, it's probably a different ecological niche because they have different leg proportions. It looks like Nanotyrannus was faster or juvenile T. rex, doesn't really matter if they grew up into the same thing, they still would have behaved differently. And as an aside, they found that tyrannosauroids in general, even the adults, were pretty quick, especially for their size. So that was sort of where we started when we started the podcast. That's what the general thinking was. Then in Smith et al. 2016, they were looking at a series of probable T-Rex tracks. So rather than starting from limb proportions, they're starting from tracks and trying to figure out, okay, how fast was the track maker moving? And they came up with an estimated speed of four and a half to eight kilometers an hour, which is between three and five miles an hour. But then again, that's only how fast it was moving at that one.
1: Yeah, that particular track.
0: Yeah. So it doesn't say anything about the maximum speed. It just
1: says that it could move at that speed at that particular time.
0: Yeah. And who knows if it was in ideal conditions? You know, like when I'm walking on wet sand, Mm -hmm. that's not the fastest I walk. It's also a little bit weird and uncomfortable walking on something like that, which is the sort of surface that often preserves fossilized tracks.
1: There's also, if you think about what kind of state the dinosaur was in while those tracks got preserved, was it hungry? Was it dragging?
0: Yeah, or was it walking fast because it was pursuing something? Mm-hmm. Like we we have no idea. So enter Hurt at all in 2017. They tried to make a general equation for maximum speed by body mass, and this was like for all animals, bipedal, quadrupedal, dinosaurs, mammals, everything basically, and everyone was kind of skeptical at the time how much you could extrapolate to weights beyond existing animals from their data set. But if you do extrapolate it, they ended up estimating that T. rex ran at a maximum of 27 kilometers an hour or about 17 miles an hour which is relatively quick it's a lot slower than the (laughs) Rexy in jurassic park because you know they had to shift through several gears in a jeep to get away from it Mm -hmm. and certainly they couldn't outrun it but at 17 miles an hour most humans should be able to outrun that because humans can run about 25 miles an hour especially for short distances for how long though for a little while. I mean, how fast could T-Rex go 17 miles an hour either? It's it's hard to keep your maximum speed up. It's not really a long distance thing usually.
1: 17 miles an hour seems pretty fast for a human.
0: Oh, I think you're right. I think 28 miles an hour is probably the world record speed. Like Usain Bolt <laughs> kind of speed. I think so, yeah. Because 20 miles an hour would be a 100 meter dash time of 11.1 seconds which i think is faster than i've ever run it mm-hmm. and 15 miles an hour is about doing a 400 meters in a minute which is about as fast as i ever did a 400 meter dash and that's faster than me yeah but the beginning with a 400 meter dash like you can go a little faster in the middle of it and the 100 meter dash is starting from a standstill so i think the peak speed as long as it didn't sneak up on you too much, you could mm. probably still get away from it. I think I'm sure you'd
1: could. be motivated to go your top speed. Yeah. I just don't know how long you could go and what that top speed would be.
0: I think the the saving grace for running away from a T-Rex is the, the speed at which it can turn. Oh, yeah. Like you, if you look at a gazelle running away from a cheetah, it's not a drag race. The gazelle is turning all over the place trying to get away from it, making the cheetah waste energy.
1: Right. Was that what this paper is about, looking at the tail?
0: That's a good point, because with cheetahs, they use their tails to sort of swivel faster and all sorts of stuff like that. But this paper is looking at using the tail just to be more efficient with walking, which is sort of an expansion on an earlier paper we talked about, Takechi et al. from 2020, which talked about how long legs help large animals walk more efficiently. And more efficient walking means less food required per day, which would mean that they don't have to hunt as often.
1: <laughs> Is this why you eat less than me?
0: Because I you walk longer, more efficiently. You got
1: longer legs, you walk more efficiently. You don't require as much food. <laughs> well,
0: I'm, but I'm bigger than you and I have more muscle than you. So I should have to eat more than you. I just don't. I don't know. There's something else going on between some individual variation happening here, but... In general, if you take the same-sized animal with longer legs and more efficient walking, then they estimated saving like hundreds to thousands of pounds of food consumption per year, which means you might not get as desperate to hunt something and end up getting injured or just wasting a bunch of energy Mm -hmm. hunting when you don't need to. So on to this new paper. We first heard about it at SVP last year. And it's really all about bouncing of T-Rex tail. You can think of it that way. So it's not at all focused on maximum speed. It's looking at the most efficient pace, or as the authors put it, the preferred walking speed, or PWS. Mm. And this new paper was published in Royal Society Open Science and written by Pasha von Bielert and others. And Pasha is the same person that did that presentation at SVP, which is why I'm so sure that it's the same study.
1: That makes sense.
0: So as far as preferred walking speed goes, you can think of it like the natural frequency and sort of a pendulum-like motion when you're walking. Most animals walk at the pace which is the most efficient mechanically for them. For humans, that average is about 1.8 hertz, plus or minus about 0.2 hertz, which to put it another way, 1.8 hertz is about 108 steps per minute. And then I don't know, have you ever used one of those apps for running or exercising where they have different beats per minute depending on the intensity of the workout?
1: Maybe, but I don't really pay attention to that part of it.
0: Okay. So if you're walking and you find a song that's like 110 beats per minute, I think you told me about like rollerblading and you found a song that was like the right beats per minute and it felt like nice to skate to that because it was like (laughs) you were in rhythm with the music. There are some apps that do that too when you're running and they try to like guess what your gait is. So if you're running, it's a lot faster. It's more like 150, 160 beats per minute or steps per minute in the case of your limbs. But if you're just trying to go for a stroll down the street and you're just walking at whatever feels the most natural, it's probably around that 100 to 120 sort of beats per minute. And for the record, a military march is usually about two hertz or 120 steps per minute, which is a little bit, it's like on the upper end of normal for walking, which means some people in the military march formation feel totally natural and other people are probably like, this is uncomfortably fast. Why are we walking so fast? Interesting. Yeah. And then to that end, the actual speed you're going depends on the length of your legs. So the U.S. military generally uses a 30-inch step for everyone, regardless of their height, so that everyone's synced up at 1.5 meters per second or 3.4 miles an hour. It's all very precise. I didn't realize I had like these very specific standards. Mm -hmm. But I guess it makes sense when you're trying to coordinate large groups of people to have these sort of requirements. But I know people with shorter legs sometimes complain that people with longer legs are walking too fast because even if you're w- walking at the same frequency, mm-hmm. it's different speeds. Sometimes you start off walking
1: together and then the person with the longer leg ends up 10 feet ahead of you somehow.
0: <laughs> that hasn't happened for us to us in a while. We, we've learned to walk together better over the years. I was going
1: to say because in the last year we haven't done much walking. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's true too. As a funny aside to this, I found a study where they blindfolded people and found that they veered off course less if they walked at their preferred walking speed because hmm. it's sort of like a natural rhythm and you're more balanced than if you're walking too fast or or too slow. Mm-hmm. Going slower doesn't help either. It, it also feels kind of awkward and yeah, uncomfortable. I feel
1: like watching people do obstacle courses where they're blindfolded and then the person there's a person guiding them somehow, they're always walking slow, and then it seems really awkward. Yeah. And then they seem more likely to trip on something and fall.
0: Yeah, they might be better off paradoxically walking faster, but then I guess you're more likely to get injured if you make a mistake. Stakes are higher, even though the incidence might be lower. <laughs> <laughs> so back to dinosaurs. That was all just to explain that this preferred walking speed is a well-documented thing. In all sorts of animals, birds and quadrupeds, they have it's been calculated for elephants and people. I think for ostriches, it's slower than people, weirdly, it's like one meter per second. I don't understand that, but I guess that's what somebody measured.
1: Well, I could see that because i've in videos of ostriches, I've only ever seen them start to run or jog, but when they're walking, it's very slow you know just kind of take a step and look around and another step
0: interesting kind of thing. yeah
1: at least that's just what i've noticed
0: so when it comes to t-rex is different than humans obviously they're pretty different animals they're also they're still bipedal but the big difference is that they have a long tail with lots of muscles and ligaments well,
1: one of the big differences
0: <laughs> in terms of their walking at least. <laughs> And that large tail allows for a sizable, quote-unquote, elastic energy storage. Now, this only works if their walking pace matches the natural bouncing of the tail. You can sort of imagine it bouncing along as they walk and the legs moving at the same sort of rhythm. And the result is the tail resonating down and up with the steps. Hmm. More importantly, up, because when the tail goes up and that caudofemoralis muscle pulls back on the leg, it lifts the leg up and you get that nice resonating walk, which just takes a little bit less energy than if the tail is held stiff or if it's not moving in concert with the legs. And if you get the right frequency too, you use gravity to sort of pull the tail back down. So it looks like kind of like a pendulum actually. Unfortunately, the authors note, quote, there are no extant analogs for tail-dependent obligate bipedal locomotion, especially combined with such a heavy emphasis on elastic storage, end quote.
1: No living animals that they walk on two legs and depend on their tail for energy storage.
0: Yeah, exactly. Because basically the only main bipedal animals are humans and birds Mm -hmm. and neither of us have tails. So what can you do?
1: (laughs) Well, birds have tails.
0: They just have the little pica style and some feathers.
1: Yeah, but some of them look like tails shake your tail feathers
0: yeah they have tail feathers but they don't have the muscles in the tail and it doesn't help them walk basically although there was that funny study where they stuck a plunger on the back of a bird (laughs) to see how it walked with a quote-unquote tail (laughs) and they found that the bird did adjust its posture and took longer steps when it had a tail but It wasn't connected to the legs at all or anything, so it didn't help with efficiency. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of limited in that way. It just
1: slowed them down.
0: Maybe. I don't know. It it took longer steps, and I think it took them just a little bit less frequently with the longer steps. It changed its natural frequency a little bit, probably. Might have also been thrown off by having a huge plunger sticking off the back end of it. I know I would be. (laughs) So the authors had to use a model to find the resonant frequency of a T-Rex and they didn't have a whole lot of modern analog to base it on. So what they did was they used the same model they first showed at SVP, which is basically partitioning the tail into five pieces with five springs. So there's four springs in between those five segments and then the last spring is connected to the sacrum, hips, and femora because there are muscles and ligaments going to all those different places. I actually think a single rigid tail probably wouldn't have been that bad of a model either because you would still get the resonating with going up and down but since it's so long you know it's like 20 feet long i could see why you'd want a little bit of flexing in it for the ligaments and the resonating they also had to estimate the ligament elasticity and the inertia of the segments of the tail which is related to the weight of the tail which is really important for the resonance but unfortunately we don't have a real great idea about the inertia or the elasticity of those ligaments. They basically just assumed that it was similar to modern animals with the ligaments in modern animals, which is probably not a bad assumption, but if T-Rex had anything unusual going on with its ligaments or it had more spacing in between its vertebrae, or cushioning in those places, or if there was way more meat or less meat on the tail than we know about, it would throw off the calculations a little bit. Still be in the same ballpark though. So when their model was all said and done, they ended up with a really nice animation of a walking T-Rex. Basically the tail bounces each time it takes a step. So not just the step cycle, it's like it bounces when it takes the left step and then it bounces again when it takes the right step. So the tail is really bouncing around quite a bit. And that makes sense because the tail has muscles to help lift the leg. So every time they lift the leg you'd expect the tail to move in a similar way regardless of which leg it is. And they found that T-Rex had a natural tail frequency, which means a natural stepping frequency in their model of 0.66 hertz or about 40 steps per minute. I don't know if that's a lot. It looks really slow because remember, humans are more like 120. Mm -hmm. So they're about three times as fast as this T-Rex. So it almost looks like it's walking in slow-mo. I think the animations of T-Rex in Jurassic Park is more like a human walking, like 120, Mm -hmm. because this 40 steps per minute really does look quite slow. But it looks really natural because the way the tail bounces, you can see how like gravity is helping when it goes down in that resonating frequency i sped it up to 2.7x just to see how it looked at like a human pace and it looks a fair amount like the jurassic park t-rex but you can see how with the tail bouncing all over the place it's not a low energy state it's clearly falling faster than gravity and then being raised, kind of jerked up so it, it doesn't look like it would be a very easy thing to maintain for a long time mm-hmm. and just for fun i want to do a marching comparison between what it sounds like if you're walking at a, a human pace versus if you do a t-rex pace so i've got a metronome so at 108 beats per minute if you're marching to it it would be like step 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 that's about how fast people walk t-rex is like step step, step thud step. thud <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Although maybe not that much of a thug because they have those really graceful feet that sort of gently rest down on the ground.
1: That's true. Also read something recently about it wouldn't want its presence known too easily because then the prey would flee.
0: Yeah, just like not roaring right before you attack. (laughs) Yeah. So you can really see how big the difference is in how fast we walk versus how fast T-Rex walks. And after watching all these videos of T-Rex walking, I was like, do we really walk at 108 beats per minute? It seems too fast. So I was watching a bunch of video clips from our doorbell camera of people walking by in front of our house to see different people. And it does seem like 108 is about the average. Some people are going a little faster. Some people are going way slower.
1: Mm -hmm. I I believe it based on our walks.
0: Yeah. So when T-Rex is going at 40 steps per minute, given their step length, of 1.94 meters that equates to 1.28 meters per second or about 2.86 miles an hour which is really close to what humans walk at. Pretty much the same speed. But again that's the lowest energy version and how much faster they could go when they were motivated we don't know. There have been some studies where they're saying they probably couldn't go on to a full run going airborne and then landing on a leg because there'd be so much mass landing on that leg that it would possibly do some damage to its leg trying to actually run. But yeah, birds can do some really fast, quote unquote, ground running where they keep one leg on the ground at all times. So
1: yeah, you were watching a lot of videos of plovers running. Yes. Just as how you just described.
0: Where they're keeping the one foot on the ground Mm -hmm. potentially. Yeah, I was watching them in slow-mo, trying to see if they kept one foot on the ground at all times, but I couldn't quite see. Roadrunners do actually run. I had to double-check that. (laughs) They go fully airborne, but T-Rex may not have.
1: Yeah, and they go so fast that you see a circle around their legs. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process.
0: Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms. And producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
1: All right. Enough Tyrannosaur talk. Back to the sauropods. I guess. (laughs) This one's quick. It's in India, sauropod fossils from 100 million years ago were recently found in Meghalaya. And they're found by researchers from the Geological Survey of India's Paleontology Division in the Northeast, and they think that these sauropods are probably titanosaurs. And it's the first time sauropods have been found in this particular region of India. Sauropods have been found in other states, but... This is the only find that's thought to be titanosaurs. Oh, cool. Yeah. The fossils were found in the last two years. It hasn't been published yet, but they found limb bones and vertebrae. They found more than 25 specimens, but a lot of them are really incomplete. So they're going to be studying three of the best preserved ones. And the largest specimen has a partially preserved limb bone that is about 21 to 22 inches or 55 centimeters long.
0: So I'm assuming 25 specimens means 25 bones, not 25 individuals.
1: Oh, to me, it sounded like individuals, but sometimes they thought an individual might be one bone. I, it was unclear. It's hard to say because this was a news item and not a published paper.
0: That's a good point. Yeah. We'll have to see what the peer-reviewed literature says on it. hmm And by that point, who knows if it'll even still be a titanosaur. <laughs> Because sometimes people at first think it's a titanosaur and it gets like a nickname like Titano, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It's like, oops, that wasn't actually a titanosaur.
1: Yeah. Once you actually prepare the fossils and you can take a good look at them. But still, good sauropod news. Hey, we've got more news. So this next one, the nonprofit campaign one at a time is currently raising money for a nine-year-old with cancer to take a trip to Dinosaur National Monument.
0: It is a great place to go.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. So the nine-year-old, her name is Jocelyn. She's been diagnosed with cell-acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And she said she really wants to travel somewhere and she wants to see dinosaurs. And she said if she discovers a dinosaur, she'd name it Jocelynosaurus. (laughs) And she hopes that the dinosaur she discovered would have a spiny back. That's a nice campaign. It's going on from now until May 17th. Their goal is to raise $10,000. I think it's to get Jocelyn and her family to Dinosaur National Monument. And maybe do some things along the way. And as of this recording, they're about a third of the way there.
0: I wonder how far she has to go.
1: She's in Northern California.
0: Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So it's maybe five hundred to a thousand miles somewhere in that ballpark. Maybe driving distance. I don't know.
1: I yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but it is a nice trip.
0: Yeah, we drove it. Although we went the other way because we went up to Canada first and hit it on the way back down.
1: It's good that the quarry is open again.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think between Dinosaur National Monument and the Royal Tyrrell Museum in Alberta, those are like the two North American sort of places worth trekking out to Mm. above most, you know, they have the most stuff, I think, and in the area where the dinosaurs are from. When you have to leave a major city kind of thing.
1: Uh, I see. Yeah. But oh, there it's are, hard to say.
0: There's yeah. So there, many. <laughs> there are so many awesome museums all over the place.
1: Speaking of museums, the Mesa Brown Museum of Natural History in South Carolina has a new dinosaur tracks exhibit. Oh, it's oh, all cool. coming together. Tracks and museums.
0: <laughs> is that a permanent exhibit?
1: I couldn't tell. I think it is.
0: It's already on our dinosaur museum map. So they have some sort of permanent dinosaur display, that means. So it yeah, very well could be another permanent addition to it.
1: Yeah, they have a lot of stuff on display, and they have 15,000 fossils from around the world in their collection. And Scott Persons, curator at the museum, and if that name sounds familiar, it's because we've interviewed him before.
0: I didn't realize that's where he was. That's cool.
1: hmm He said the museum is also studying tyrannosaur tracks in Wyoming, uh, which makes it sound like maybe they'll bring those tracks back. There's a short video that shows the tracks and they're talking about how T-Rex didn't quite walk. That's where I heard it from. T-Rex didn't walk the way that it's depicted in Jurassic Park because you'd hear it coming and flee. So it wouldn't be good for trying to get prey.
0: So, oh, I see what you mean. So they in, T- in Jurassic Park, you could hear it coming and you'd flee. Yeah. But in real life, you wouldn't hear it coming. Yeah, exactly.
1: Gotcha. I. Knew I'd read that or seen that recently. (laughs) It was very recent. Anyway, the tracks that are on display, they're from around the world. They have a stegosaurus track cast, a large ornithopod track, and ornithopod track paths. And, you know, just like with all tracks, they help to show dinosaur behavior, like their stride length and then how fast they walked, at least in the track area.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's cool. And tracks give you a certain amount of information that you can't get from the bones.
1: Mm-hmm. The museum right now, it's open by appointment only. So if you're in the area, make an appointment.
0: Or if you're passing through on a dinosaur road trip, yeah, make an appointment.
1: Yeah, if you're on a road trip, I guess it's good to have some plans in advance. Although sometimes it's nice to be spontaneous
0: yeah you're more on the spontaneous side of road trips i'm more on the planning side because mm-hmm. i want to maximize my number of dinosaur museums <laughs> and other fun attractions yep
1: <laughs> okay this next thing well it's an event that already happened but i hadn't heard of an event like this before so i thought it was worth mentioning and it has to do with food and dinosaurs so i was kind of like <laughs> wow well, really want to talk about this <laughs> But it's all because of this new allosaurus skeleton on display at the Zhongjiai Museum of Natural Science in China. And the skeleton has been on display since May 1st. So this event that they had was the day before April 30th. It was a special event with paleontologist Lita Xing. And they had this live broadcast about the allosaurus. And then the behind the scenes, they had this, they called it a dinosaur eating event.
0: Were they just eating chickens?
1: Yeah, basically. (laughs) It was an allosaurus dinner they had multiple dishes that were, you know, different meats, and it was inspired by the Jurassic and also Guangzhou's food. So they had, you know, boiled dinosaur eggs, which are bird eggs, and then they had scallion oil white dragon, which are chicken slices, and red dragon chuan yan, which is roasted pigeon. So all meats like Allosaurus would have eaten, although, you know, different meats. <laughs> pigeons weren't around.
0: And some scallions. Yeah. Just for... Flavor. Yeah.
1: Because... We don't want to eat all our meats raw.
0: <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and flavorless. <laughs> if it was a real Allosaurus dinner, you wouldn't even pluck the chicken. You'd just bite off a chunk of it without using your hands.
1: Right, right. <laughs> it, I said Jurassic inspired. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I thought that was a, a cool idea for an event. Yeah. I, I mean, I love food, so anything that involves food. Food and dinosaurs, like win-win. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess anytime I'm eating chicken or some kind of poultry, I should just think about how it's like I'm eating a dinosaur anyway.
0: Well, I definitely think about that whenever I'm roasting a turkey Mm -hmm. or cooking a chicken because you really see all the dinosaur bones that you're used to seeing on these skeletal drawings. (laughs)
1: That's true. So there's another new game out. It's called Second Extinction. It's open for early access, but somebody reviewed it on Kotaku. And it's got dinosaurs. It's a first person shooter game.
0: So you're shooting dinosaurs?
1: Yeah. Because it takes place in the future and mutated dinosaurs have somehow taken over Earth. (laughs) As they do. There's no real details of how that happened. But now, you know, you've got to kill the dinosaurs and take Earth back for humans. Interesting. Yeah. So that's the main game. But then they also have side quests like collecting dinosaur eggs.
0: I think I prefer playing as a dinosaur to playing as somebody shooting dinosaurs. Mm.
1: Or if you get bored, you could mix, go back and forth.
0: Yeah. I feel like I did play a game once where you could, or maybe I'm just thinking an alien or alien versus predator where you can play as the aliens or the people.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: (laughs) There are some games like that, or like you play as a zombie on one side and the people on the other side or Hmm. Yeah.
1: So this game, Second Extinction, is still in development, but dinosaur-wise, so far it's mostly raptors, which isn't surprising. I guess if if any kind of mutated dinosaurs were going to take over, it was going to be a raptor.
0: I mean, they're small, so that helps.
1: Yeah. They have an enemy page <laughs> is All the dinosaurs, and they tell you a little bit about the dinosaur enemies. And they've got raptor, and the description is hunts and packs. Then there's an acid raptor, so you can imagine.
0: I can't imagine.
1: I think it spits out acid. Oh, okay. Then there's the bull, which to me looks like Styracosaurus, and its whole thing is it charges.
0: Mm, makes sense.
1: And there's T Rex, known as the Big Boss. Oh, and there's the necro flatback, which looks like some kind of ankylosaur.
0: Ooh. Yeah. Ankylosaur making the cut. Mm-hmm. No sauropods, though.
1: Because sauropods are gentle giants that wouldn't hurt anything.
0: Oh, I see. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Whereas
0: they're passive. Uh, yeah, the the ankylosaurs have some weaponry. Although some of those sauropods have the club tails too.
1: Only when necessary.
0: Unlike ankylosaurs that are, are hunting for sport. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Touche. <laughs> then the other piece of game news is there's a Resident Evil Village mod that somebody made that has Barney the dinosaur as an enemy type.
0: Huh. There was a mod for, I think, the first Castle Wolfenstein, one of the very early first-person shooters that turned all the enemies into Barney.
1: Oh, that would be weird. (laughs) It's
0: because if you're not a child, Barney can be very annoying, and you might want to take out your frustrations.
1: Oh, I remember not liking Barney as a child, so... but. I also remember it being mixed among my friends who liked Barney and who didn't. <laughs> anyway, so this mod substitutes all the enemies with Barney in the cellar area of this castle. And there's a picture that shows three Barneys. They're all coming for you. and One is laughing.
0: So jeez! Oh,
1: pretty creepy. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's intense. Yeah. It's similar to like clowns.
1: A little bit, yeah. And now on our dinosaur of the day, Eotriceratops, which was a request from Noctum Von Doom via our Patreon and Discord, so thanks. Eotriceratops was a chasmosaurine ceratopsian that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Alberta, Canada. It was found on Dry Island in the Horseshoe Canyon Formation. And it looks a lot like triceratops. It's got the two big brow horns and a small nasal horn and a frill and a beak. It's one of the largest ceratopsians so, other large ceratopsians include Triceratops horridus and the ichnogenus Ceratopsipes, which is based on that name, Trax. Eotriceratops is estimated to be 29.5 feet or 9 meters long, although Gregory Paul estimated it to be 27.8 feet or 8.5 meters long and weigh 10 tons. The holotype skull is estimated to be 9.8 feet or 3 meters long.
0: Ooh, that's a big skull.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, like I said, one of the largest ceratopsians. It was an herbivore. It had this relatively flat, long snout. The rostral's large and from the side looks somewhat boomerang-shaped. An eoraptor had 35 tooth rows preserved in the maxilla. And it had unique features in the premaxilla, nasal horn core, squamosal frill, and epijugal. So it had these long crescent or spindle-shaped epoxipitals. On the squamosal frill, so these bones lining the bottom of the frill, it had this sharply conical epijugal on the cheek, and had a low nasal horn that was slightly recurved, and this nasal horn core was longer than it was wide. The horns above its eyes curved forward, and those were about two point six feet or eighty centimeters long.
0: It sounds a lot like Triceratops, except for maybe the epoccipitals because I think Triceratops didn't have a whole lot of frill ornamentation. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, the other interesting thing was there were three bite marks found above the eye near the base of the left horn, and they think that could have been from scavengers. The type and only species is Eotriceratops exeren solaris, and the genus name Eotriceratops means dawn three-horned face.
0: So I'm guessing that means that it was An ancestor or in an older formation than Triceratops?
1: Yes. So it's a close relative of Triceratops, Nettoceratops, Taurosaurus, or depending on who you ask, all Triceratops. (laughs) And when it was named, it was found to be the oldest known member of this group. So that's why the Dawn Three-Horde Face.
0: Does anybody consider Eotriceratops to be also Triceratops?
1: Yes, in 2010, Gregory Paul renamed Eotriceratops to Triceratops, but most people didn't agree with that. Okay. The species name means of the dry island and refers to Dry Island Buffalo Jump Provincial Park, where the specimen was found. So the fossils of Eotriceratops were actually found in 1910 by Barnum Brown during an American Museum of Natural History expedition. But... Brown at the time was more interested in the Albertosaurus skeletons that were in the same location, so he didn't do anything with that find.
0: But he collected it?
1: No. What happened was in 2001, a team from the Royal Tyrrell and Canadian Museum of Nature went on an expedition to Dry Island, and they didn't know that Barnum Brown had already found this <laughs> specimen.
0: 91 years earlier?
1: Yeah, but Glenn Guthrie, the camp cook of the team, rediscovered the skeleton by accident.
0: Wow. And it was still in decent shape after 91 Canadian winters.
1: Mm-hmm. Maybe not too much was showing.
0: Yeah. Or maybe it wasn't in as good of shape, but we don't know how good of <laughs> shape it originally was in.
1: So Eotriceratops was described and named in 2007 by Xiao Chun Wu and others. And it's the first identifiable dinosaur found in the upper 65 feet or 20 meters of the Horseshoe Canyon formation. And it was found in Carbonaceous Shale. There's no duplicate bones that have been found, so it's been interpreted to all belong to one specimen, the holotype. And the holotype is a partial skeleton with a skull, no lower jaws. It includes the neck and back vertebrae, ribs, and ossified tendons, and the skull includes parts of the frill sides, the large horns above the eyes, and the horn above the nose.
0: Yeah, it's pretty good for ceratopsy, and that gives you a lot of information.
1: Yeah, The left premaxilla was more complete than the right, and the bones, especially the skull, were disarticulated, and some of them were badly crushed. The brain case was badly crushed. More potential Eotriceratops specimens have been found in New Mexico, but they've been classified as Ohoceratops phalleri and Taurosaurus eutyensis. For now? Yes.
0: It is interesting that the original fossil was found over a hundred years ago but since it was named so much later it doesn't get very much of a naming priority
1: what do you mean naming
0: priority so torosaurus utaliensis for example was named it looks like in 1946 or 1976 but since this one wasn't named until way later that means that it would get synonymized into torosaurus if they find that it was the same even though technically it was found like 40 years earlier since it wasn't described until later (laughs) Yeah, weird. Barnum Brown. Yeah, right.
1: (laughs) It would have a totally different name if Brown had named it.
0: Yeah, although, I mean, it's possible that he would have just called it Triceratops or Taurosaurus or something, and then it wouldn't have gotten renamed into its own genus until later anyway. True. You never know. And our fun fact of the day is that there is a lot of nutritional content in bones, so T-Rex might have had access to a food source that most vertebrates can't manage.
1: So being able to bo- so being able to crush bones wasn't purely just to gobble everything in sight, it was also maybe to get nutrients.
0: Yeah. And it wasn't also just to injure prey either, Mm. which is usually the way I think of it. Like, oh, it could bite so strong that when it was attacking something, it would break the bones. But it's like it might have wanted to break the bones to eat them too. So the most obvious source of nutrition in bones is the bone marrow. There's actually two types of bone marrow. There's red marrow and yellow marrow. Red marrow is sometimes called active marrow. It's full of stem cells that produce red blood cells, platelets, and white blood cells yellow marrow is called yellow because it has a much higher fat content so it appears yellow and it also produces some white blood cells but it's not the active marrow i guess it doesn't make the red blood cells and platelets much if at all and as a quick aside when humans are born all of our bones in our whole body have red marrow in them but it converts to about half yellow marrow as we age. And some bones completely lose their marrow entirely, especially like the ends of our limbs, like hands and feet and things don't really have any marrow. Interesting. Yeah. And adults also average about 2.6 kilograms or 5.7 pounds of bone marrow. It's a lot of bone marrow. I mean, it's really important. It's basically where your blood is created mm-hmm. in your the middle of your bones. It's really weird, but that's where it comes from. At least some of the components of blood, there's lots of, Organs involved. Nutritionally speaking, though, the marrow humans eat from cows at least is mostly fat with some protein and vitamins. I'm pretty sure what we eat is red marrow.
1: Even though it's higher fat content?
0: Yeah, despite it being like 80% fat, I think yellow marrow must just be like almost entirely fat, (laughs) like 90 or 95% or something. Red marrow is mostly in vertebrae, hips, ribs femora and humeri, but it varies in different animals and obviously in the age of the individual too, how much. In humans, you get most of the marrow from our our hips is usually where you pay attention to. It's kind of weird. Our hips are actually kind of thick and there's a whole inner layer going along, especially in like the, the upper part, that broad part of the hip. There's a lot of marrow in there and then our spine has some as well, but there's marrow throughout the rest of our body too. It is kind of tricky, though, to find out this sort of connection between nutritional marrow and like marrow in terms of a biological sense, <laughs> because there isn't a lot of overlap in like scientists talking about functional marrow and people eating food and figuring out the nutritional content of marrow. That's why I'm not completely sure that the marrow that we eat in like cow vertebrae is red marrow, because people don't care when they're eating it. They just care what the fat content is and things like that. But it looks red. So I think it's probably red marrow, plus some of the sources I read said the red marrow is usually in the spine. But there's a lot more nutrition in bones than just the marrow if you can digest it.
1: That's the key. <laughs> yes. That's always the key with things you eat.
0: Yeah, the if you can digest it part. So humans can't digest a bone. I mean, we sort of could. You can digest like small amounts of bone. If you eat like a fish bone, You might be able to digest it because they're very small, so they might dissolve a little bit in the stomach acid. But the real problem there is that things don't sit in our stomach acid long enough to dissolve, and our our gastric system just isn't set up to digest bone. But in something like hyenas, they can digest bone because their gastric system is set up for it. And T-Rex may have been able to as well, although I'm not really sure about this because they've found bone fragments in, in coprolites coprolite, yeah. that they think is T-Rex. And I would presume that if they were digesting the bone, it probably wouldn't be fragments anymore. It would probably be broken down more. But...
1: If you think, though, that there's two and a half billion T-Rex that lived and the amount of coprolite or the amount of poop that they produced and then how much of that turned into coprolite, like maybe this wasn't... These aren't normal coprolites.
0: Yeah. And they have... Birds have such a fancy digestive system with like the gizzard and the gastric mill and all that. I'm not sure if they have more ability to sort of adjust how much time things spend in their gut. Maybe they could keep something like a bone in their gut and their gizzard longer if they were trying to digest it as a bone rather than if they're just trying to digest a bunch of meat and they swallow a couple fragments of bone with it. I don't really know. I mean, we can't tell because we can't ask ask T-Rex or look at their gut contents. But while I was looking into this, I found out there is a modern dinosaur that digests bones. In fact, it is the vertebrate which eats more bones as a percentage of diet than any other vertebrate. Wow. (laughs) It's called the bearded vulture, and up to 90% of their diet consists of bone. It's usually between 70 and 90%. That's a lot. Yeah, it's way more than hyenas. Hyenas basically eat bone as like when they're done eating all the meat and flesh off something, they'll eat some bones that have a bunch of bone marrow in them because they can, but it's not their primary food source. Whereas bearded vultures, it is the thing that they go after. They're actually really pretty animals, especially for a vulture. They remind me a lot of dinosaur paleo art that I've seen, especially of raptors and stuff. They have like white heads and they sort of have like almost like a mascara or like eyeliner look around their eyes with like black and they have like red around their eyes they're very pretty birds Hmm. and part of that is because they don't have bald heads probably because they're not jamming their heads into rotting corpses (laughs) (laughs) so they don't they're not worried about getting gross stuff on their head feathers so they can have nice pretty fluffy heads but They do have a pretty strong bite. They can actually bite through bones because if a bone has been sitting out for a while, they can get brittle, especially if they're in the sun for a while, and the marrow can still be good inside those bones depending on the conditions. And sometimes they can actually bite strong enough to bite through bones. So depending on the circumstances, it might not really be that impressive the T-Rex can bite through bones because if it's just a skeleton sitting out for a long time, there might be a lot of things that could bite through the bones if they were interested in trying to digest it. Mm Mm-hmm. Usually, though, they don't bite through the bones. What they do is they fly up into the air 100 feet or more, and then the, they drop them onto rocks.
1: The vultures, not the T-Rex. Yes.
0: <laughs> T-Rex would, would definitely stick to biting. <laughs> they, their arms are not sufficient for flying. But the bearded vultures will, just like we see with crows and all sorts of clever birds, they drop them on rocks, and then they go down, and then they gather up the pieces that they're interested in. But they really focus on the marrow because the marrow is the most nutritious part of the bone. They can lift bones that weigh up to four kilograms or nine pounds, and they only weigh about six kilograms or 14 pounds. So the bones are like approaching their own weight that they're picking up. Strong. Yeah, and I think they could reach, I think I read they could lift bones that were up to four inches or so in diameter, but they try to stick to lighter bones because it's a lot of work carrying those big bones really high up in the air. And since, you know, vertebrae are some of the bones that have the most marrow, you might want to stick to those anyway. Just one more thing about what they eat. Outside of bones, uh, allegedly, they really like hunting tortoises using that same dropping technique.
1: I feel like there's a Looney Tunes cartoon about this.
0: A, a bird picking up a turtle and dropping it and eating it?
1: A vulture trying to get a tortoise, maybe? Oh, man. My memory might not be correct That's here, a but...
0: dark Looney Tune.
1: <laughs> well... Uh, the tortoise the looney tune tortoise is quite a stinker
0: oh okay so you don't feel bad for him
1: well I mean it's like Bugs Bunny he can outmaneuver when he needs to gotcha but I don't remember if the vulture and the tortoise were in the same cartoon I just know they're characters
0: it's interesting this reminds you of looney tunes because it reminded me of sauropods and their interactions I knew where with you were turtles. going with
1: that and <laughs> I wanted to change the conversation I see
0: <laughs> All right. So back to the bearded vultures (laughs) eating bones. They, Like I said, they mostly eat bones. It's not really tortoises are not a major component of it. But in order to digest bones, their stomach acid is really, really strongly acidic. The pH is between 0.7 and 1, which the closer you get to zero, the more acidic it is. That's a very, very strong acid. Humans range between about 1.5 and 3.5. Although a few sources listed one and a half as the common pH, which is actually pretty acidic. We have pretty acidic stomach acid as far as animals go. But the big problem with us is that even though our stomach acid is strong enough to dissolve bone, if it sits in there long enough, our guts just aren't set up for it. So, for example, a bearded vulture takes about 24 hours to dissolve a a bone that's in its stomach slash gizzard and it's churning it around, moving it around a little bit in that strong stomach acid, whereas I don't think we ever have anything in our stomach for 24 hours. That's a really long time. That's like how long it takes to go through our whole digestive system in a lot of cases. But unfortunately, it's something we don't know for T. rex, how long things were in their stomachs. So that's what we know about modern animals and marrow, but Quickly, I want to go through what nutrition is in bones besides marrow because when I was reading about hyenas, I learned that they digest the bones and they, they chew up all these bones. Sometimes they'll eat an entire skeleton and they don't only always just eat the bones that have marrow in them because they can get some nutrition from those bones without marrow. A lot of this comes from a really interesting paper by Adele Boski in Bone Key Reports, which is the official journal of the International Bone and Mineral Society.
1: Interesting.
0: Yeah, they seemed like a good source to go through.
1: Yeah, I like that title too.
0: (laughs) Bone Key Reports? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good one. So the biggest component of bones, even including marrow in most cases, is the mineral hydroxyapatite. And that's that white mineral structure that you're used to seeing when you look at a bone. It's not just calcium, though. It's five parts calcium, three parts phosphorus, and the rest is oxygen and hydrogen. So it's actually a pretty rich source of phosphorus, and I think we've mentioned that, that maybe T-Rex might eat some bone on occasion if it wanted to get some phosphorus in its diet, because that's not always the easiest thing to find. Whereas calcium you can get by eating like gastropods or something, because they're calcium carbonate, can be a little bit trickier to find phosphorus. Aside from that mineral, though, There is a lot of collagen throughout the bone. And when you demineralize a bone, we've talked about that before, when you soak it in acid, you're basically left with that collagen sort of lattice in between, and that's generally where the mineralization starts. It sort of starts in this collagen lattice, and that's it percolates out from the collagen kind of, and then solidifies around it. But there's also a lot of non-collagen proteins, like blood vessels, other blood vessels, also contain collagen, because there's just collagen all over the place. It's like a quarter of the protein in our body is collagen. But since the collagen is a type of protein, if you can dissolve that bone and you can digest the collagen, then you can get a decent amount of protein from the bone as well. Another wrinkle is that pneumatic, also known as hollow bones in modern birds, tend to have quite a bit less marrow. So they might've needed to rely, if something was specializing on bones or eating bones, might've needed to rely on something other than marrow. And between bones, there's a lot of variability in what nutrients they have. All bones are essentially a ratio of water, mineral, and organic material. For example, the beak of a beaked whale is almost 100% mineral, so it has very little nutritional value. It probably wouldn't be worth eating for anything unless it just wanted calcium or phosphorus. Mm -hmm. But the dry weight, meaning the non-water portion of crocodiles, birds, and mammals are all in the sixty to seventy percent range for mineral component, and thirty to forty percent range for organic. So that's quite a bit of protein and other potential nutrients in that bone if you can dissolve it.
1: Wonder why the beaked whale is one hundred percent mineral.
0: <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's probably a very strong beak. Yeah, <laughs> and it's not the whole whale. So, like other parts of the whale are less mineral and I, mm-hmm. I guess it maybe it just doesn't need blood supply to it or something it is it is weird there are also some like rays that are mostly water is there almost like cartilaginous type skeletons mm. sharks too but even if t-rex could digest these bones and get to that organic material it's likely that just like most animals t-rex would prefer the easy access to fat and meat which is outside of the bones And doesn't require dissolving a whole bunch of mineral, like more than half of the bone being mineral, that's not really useful unless they're laying a whole ton of eggs or something. And after eating all that fat and meat, if they were going to eat bones, they would probably go for bones like vertebrae that have a lot of marrow, just like those bearded vultures do.
1: If you're going to go through all that effort, you want it to pay off.
0: Yeah, because there's a lot of fat in those bones and, you know, animals like to get their most calories they possibly can from what they're consuming and you get a lot more out of marrow than you do out of collagen but i could see a scenario where they were desperate and just wanted to eat something and they might eat some bones just to get that collagen and other proteins out of the bone that doesn't have marrow in it but again it's not an ideal source since bones are mostly minerals that they're probably not interested in so you're eating a lot of filler (laughs) with that collagen and the collagen itself isn't as nutritious as meat or fat that you get from other parts of the animal so i guess the summary is t-rex might have been able to digest bones but even if it could it might not have focused on it Mm -hmm. and if its gi tract was set up for eating triceratops meat it might not have really even been able to digest the bone if it passed through too fast
1: maybe if it was desperate Go for the bones.
0: Yeah, that's basically what I'm thinking. And it could handle it.
1: hmm And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Join our growing community at Patreon, patreon.com slash I Know Dino, if you want to have even more conversations about dinosaurs, plus other perks. Thanks again, and until next time.